Hello everybody, welcome to Anfield Extra from the Liverpool Echo. I'm Andy Kelly and I'm uh, joined by my colleague Neil Jones. And today we're delighted to be joined uh, by Sir Martin Broughton. Um, Sir Martin was the chairman of Liverpool for a tempestuous period uh, in 2010. Um, perhaps one of the most dramatic few months in the club's history. Uh, and we've come down to London to have a chat with him about those few months and uh, try and put a bit more meat on the bone of what exactly went on in those, uh, those dramatic uh, few months uh, in the closing months of the Hicks and Gillette period at Liverpool. So Martin, thanks very much for joining us. Um, can you just take us back to your first knowledge of, of Liverpool in the sense of potentially becoming uh, a significant figure at the club? You made no secret of the fact you've been a long-time Chelsea fan. But um, just if you can tell supporters about why you were asked to come on board and what your role was likely to be at the football club. Well, it's a strange background, really. Um, I had approached a very good friend, a guy called Michael Klein, um, to help me think about raising money for a sports investment business that I was starting with my son and three other guys. And that was like on the Thursday. And he came up with a few ideas. Um, on the Saturday, he rang me and said, things have changed. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, last night I met with Tom Hicks and George Gillette at Liverpool. Um, who were asking him also for advice. <laughs> uh, but in that case, it wasn't for raising money. It was, what do we do now? Because they'd fallen out with each other, as you know. There'd been a history of Tom Hicks trying to sell George Gillette's half of the business and George trying to sell Tom Hicks's half of the business. They were under pressure from the bank to pay off the debt. Um, they had an offer from a ex-colleague of Tom's uh, who had actually demanded more than they were willing to give so they pulled out of it which had upset the bank so they were under heavy pressure from the bank to do something and they were asking Michael what do we do and Michael's advice to them was eminently sensible as Michael's advice always was really, which was you have both lost credibility with the fans, with the bank, and with all potential buyers. <laughs> yeah. um, so you have to do it together, separately, and you have to put an independent person in charge who would have the credibility with potential buyers that he could deliver, knowing that that's what's going to be their to get interest. Um, and they reluctantly accepted his advice and said, do you, do you have anyone in mind? And I think because I'd met him the previous day and, and reignited a, a long-term uh, relationship, I think I was the first person who came to his mind. I'm looking at you. And was that sort of reluctance on their part, smart and driven by the fact that RBS, the bank, who they owed a considerable sum of money to at the time, um, felt that the offer that had come on the table, which I think was, was that the wrong group offer from New York? Yeah. Um, RBS, I think, were fairly keen that that offer should have been accepted. 
uh, and there was a certain annoyance on their behalf that it hadn't been and they were keen they were very keen that someone like yourself an independent yes. was brought on board to they, push through the seal is it fair to say that? Th that is correct they also had in mind I later learned a candidate Tom Hicks had or no, no, RBS had RBS had, RBS had. And do we know who that um, is? I do but I'm not at liberty to say um, I do know who it was and Hicks and Gillette didn't want that candidate because they didn't want it to be the bank putting in the chairman. They wanted them to be putting in the chairman and keep control of the process in, the, in their minds, so to speak. So they did. They were under heavy pressure from the bank because I think it was 100 million that the Rome Group were going to bring in, which would have all gone to the bank. Um, that was for 40% of the club, I think. I think it was 40% was of it was kind of effective control. Because the Hicks and Gillette yeah. would have split 30-30. Well, then. I'm not even sure about that. I think there were other things in there. I can't remember now. Yeah. Too, but I think they certainly felt that they were giving up control. Um, so they weren't prepared to do it. Um, so the bank, yes, the bank was demanding an independent chairman. But the bank was also demanding who they were going to put in. Um, and you were acceptable to I was, to that? Yeah, so, so Hicks and Jet said to Michael, okay, can we meet him? Which we did the following week. Um, and I agreed fairly quickly uh, to do it. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but one of the things I had to do was to bring up um, Stephen Hester, Hester um, who was running Chief the bank, yeah. bank who I, I knew Stephen, um, to say they've asked me to do it. What do you feel about that? And because, um, and because Stephen knew me, um, he felt like okay, he wasn't the person they'd intended to put in, but that was an acceptable compromise. Do you think Hicks and Gillette felt you were an ex a candidate for that role who they could manipulate? What, whatever was to happen since and perhaps make them reconsider their minds, do you think that they accepted your role because they felt that you were someone who they could potentially um, either work with or, or come around to their way of thinking? Yes. Um, I think Tom definitely. Both of them were big corporate players who were used to people doing as they were told. So the only time people they knew were people who did as they were told. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, I think they assumed <laughs> that as chairman, I would do as I was told. I think Tom in particular felt that, because that's what everybody did, but Tom didn't actually want to sell. George wanted to sell. So I attribute that more to Tom. George, George just wanted to sail, and if this was part of a necessary process and had a sale, George was convinced that he got a sale already set up. So this was going to be a temporary little thing, it would last a couple of months, the deal would go through, all would be fine, 
okay, he might get a, a little payoff for fronting it, he'd get what he wanted. So I don't think George was thinking, I can manipulate this guy. Um, although, like Tom, he always surrounded himself with people who did as they were told. Um, I think Tom just assumed he could. If you take you to that first meeting with, with Hicks and Gillette, then where was the, where did that take place? And, and, that was, and what did you find? It was, I couldn't tell you the name of the restaurant now, but it was in a restaurant in Liverpool with my little client. Right, so it was the four of us. It was in Liverpool, yeah? Yeah. Okay, and, and what um, was it? No, I think it was in London, actually. Oh, right. it was in London. <laughs> there we go. I think it was in London. No, no. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It was in a restaurant. Yeah, it was, it was, in, it was in the UK, <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was the, what was the tone and what was, what was discussed? That I mean, what was the tone I mean, of that meeting? They made commitments there, yeah. which I held them to, essentially. Um, I, was, I was fully aware uh, of their background. I was fully aware of the... Yeah. tensions between the two of them, although there was no sign of it at yeah. the dinner. Um, uh, so I was very aware of that. But they made commitments which I decided I would take at face out, uh, which was um, we misunderstood. Um, the fans don't like us, but we're good guys really. Um, we want to go out with our heads held high. Um, we want to do, since we recognise now we can't continue to own it, we want to find the best owners um, and we want people to recognise that we were actually good guys doing our best. It didn't work out, but we've done our best by handing it over to the right people. That's what we want. Those are the words. But I took those at face value and decided that's what I would try and do. And crucially, put in place, and I think probably in, in writing tomorrow at this stage, was a situation where a new board was in place for you, of which you were the chair, with, with five members, with you having a, a casting vote effectively, and a situation also where they undertook not to stand in the way, and this was a phrase that came up much later on in the court case, of, of, of a reasonable sale of, sale of the club. The, the, yeah. Those two points seem crucial. Yeah, there was yeah the crucial thing, which I think was a recommendation from Couchmans, which were advising me, um, was that it was a five-man board. Um, the two of them, uh, myself, and, and then the two executives, Christian uh, and Ian. Um, that I was the only person who could make any changes to the board. I couldn't fire either of them. Uh, I could dismiss either of the other two. Um, but I was the only person who could add somebody to it or make any other changes. Uh, and that turned out to be crucial uh, in the end. As we will we'll find out as yeah. we, we go through. So we're in a situation here, April 2010. To all intents and purposes, general feeling is that the, the Hicks and Gillette relationship had broken down. In fact, it sounds like you probably you did well to get I through get a meeting in a restaurant <laughs> together. <laughs> um, they were both very affable to me and to each other in that meeting. Um, and you are formally appointed as chairman of Liverpool FC. Um, no doubt you come up to Anfield 
tender game. there's been suggestions, obviously, within two months of your appointment, Rafa Benitez disappears as Liverpool manager. Uh, you're a manager much loved and continues to be much loved by supporters. And a man who's since gone to your own club and delivered a European trophy yep. for you. Um, can you tell us a bit about the situation as you saw it with, with Rafa Benitez and... Were you essentially the man who sacked him from Liverpool? Yeah. The one thing I did not want to do was to sack Rafa. And the reason I didn't want to was nothing to do with my relationship with Rafa. The reason was I felt the the right people to decide who the new manager should be or that it should be Rafa would be the new owners. The wrong person who was me before delivering the new owner on a champion basis. So um, I was very clear in my position that Rafa stays. Rafa's the, the manager. Um, as you're aware at that time, there was a very unhealthy atmosphere where you had three clicks basically you had the owners you had the manager Rafa and you had the executive um, all leaking to people like yourselves yeah. <laughs> against the other two um, and of course there was a subdivision of that between the two owners as well well a subdivision of that between yeah. the two owners and Rafa had his own full time PR yeah. person who was managing his position. Um, I had expected, given that, that with me coming on board, Rafa would actually make an effort to align himself with a a potential actor. Um, It turned out to be quite different because I felt I didn't want, this may be me just being old fashioned, I didn't want my first meeting with Rafa to be on the phone. I wanted a face-to-face meeting. So, almost immediately after being appointed, there was a match um, on a... It was a Monday Monday night match. It was a Monday night match. Um, So I, I sent a message to Rafa that I'd like to have breakfast with him on the Tuesday morning. Right, so don't interfere with the manager on the day of the match or anything like that. So can we have breakfast Tuesday morning? Yes, fine. Um, it turned out that that was the week with the volcanic ash problems. Uh, Liverpool were playing in, in Saragossa, I think it was, but certainly in Spain on the Thursday, so they were leaving Tuesday lunchtime um, by coach. I didn't think that stopped him having breakfast on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> when you leave at Tuesday lunchtime, that wouldn't have been an issue for me. Um, but in the early hours of the morning, a message went from Rafa to Christian to say, so this is Christian Pozlo, the managing yep, yep, director of the book, that he couldn't meet me 
because he had to be off at lunchtime, etc. Et okay, well, I didn't really understand that, but fine. How long have you been at the club at this point? About three days. Three days, right, and still haven't had yeah. met. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, no more than three days. Um, and I was still based in London. Um, anyway, so, um, so he went off to Saragotha uh, and then came back the following weekend, which was an away game, which I didn't go to. Uh, and then there was a replay the following uh, week. Um, so again, I said to him, right, um, can we meet for breakfast the day after, the morning after the match? Great. Um, Liverpool, I think, I can't remember whether we drew that game but lost on yeah, away goals, away goals or, yeah. or won that game but lost on away yeah, goals. Exactly. So, again, in the early hours of the morning, comes a message that says, um, I'm too distraught with the result. My head's not in the right place. Um, I can't be. Oh, this is getting weird. Yeah, this is a second opportunity to just have a chat, right? But on the on the, that weekend's pre-match chat with the TV, Rafa says, "I don't understand what's going on here. The new chairman's been here nearly two weeks, and he's not, but I've not even met him yet." Hmm. I see the tone of things there. <laughs> Um, I still didn't. I still didn't want him to go. I, I, I fine. Let's. I'm used to people playing city games at times, so let's keep it straight. Um, you think he wanted because of the situation in the club, the stress? We've been in a while. We had an interesting thing where he he did. I did then meet him, right? <laughs> and that, I had a, a two-hour download from Rafa without being able to get a word in about what was wrong. And that was fine, let him get off his chest, let me hear it. I was perfectly happy with that, that's not a complaint at all. This was your first face This was my first face to face with him. So we had about a four hour meeting, but it was at least two hours of just non being told. Just being told all of the things that were wrong with the company, which was helpful. You know, I'd like to see his version. Um, I then had another meeting with him a few days later maybe a week later, I got the same two-hour download. Before you could actually have a conversation, you got the two-hour download. And, and they keep interrupting and saying, Rafa, you've told me that. Yep, you just need to hear this. Rafa, you've told me that. Yep, you just need to hear this. Okay. Um, essentially, I was saying to him, what do you need? I said, from my background, if you want investment, you say what's wrong, what have you tried to do about it that hasn't worked, what do you need, and how's it going to work? And he'd come with a, a shopping list, one of which was, for example, a left back. And I said, Rafa, you've been here six years and you bought six left backs. And you're telling me none of them have worked. So what are you going to do differently this time to the other patients? There was no answer. I did ask him to, to write down everything he wanted, why it was going to work. To be fair to him, he did. He did. 
Um, he thought this was totally incomprehensible from a football viewpoint. You don't do that, but he did it. But, and I began to think that we were beginning to get you know, on the right wavelength when it became obvious he wanted to have discussions through his lawyer. And that's really when it became obvious that he wanted out. I, do you think he was, for want of a better word, insulted that yourself, who has a long history in business, um, fantastic business record, but essentially he would view as not a football person, would go in and start telling him about his record with left-backs or anything else. Did, did, do you think he, that, that was something that he couldn't, he just no, couldn't, no, I think couldn't put up with? I think he'd, um, I think he'd probably already decided he'd had enough before I even got there. Um, you know, I think he felt that, as you say, the, the atmosphere was pretty awful. Um, and I think he'd seen the opportunity to maybe get out with a new person coming in as an opportunity to get out rather than an opportunity to... Would he have feared as well that it would be a quick sale process and maybe that you, the person you would, would sell to would come in straight away and take the decision out of his hands? It, possibly, possibly. That never came into our conversation, but quite possibly. Um, it's yeah, I didn't want to get distracted by all of this. Yeah. It was very interesting as well, the, the fan input to me personally was about 50-50. In, in terms of, there was no moderate. It was totally polarised. It was the one thing you must not do, basically, is get rid of Rafa. To this club will never go forward unless Rafa goes. And it was about 50-50, but they were totally extreme. Entrenched. It was in totally entrenched, totally extreme, nothing in the middle. And how were you receiving that? Was that sort of email, email face-to-face? Yeah, yeah. A bit face-to-face, -face, but email. In terms of the board at the time, you obviously had two people in America who were sort of out of the equation almost in terms of football and decisions. You had Ian, you had Christian. Did you take advice from anyone who you would consider a football person, or, you know, in terms of in terms of football and decisions, or were you, you taking that from Christian and Ian specifically? Um, Christian, Ian and Kenny Dalglish. Kenny, uh, when it came to... I tried to keep out of football matters altogether. Right? The executive was running the club. I was there to find new owners. I <laughs> uh, hadn't intended to get involved in the football side of it uh, at all. Uh, got dragged into the management piece. But I asked Christian and Kenny to find new manager. I said, well, Christian, you're the executive. You've got to, you've got to do all the negotiations in yeah, how much it's going to cost and all the rest of it. Contractual negotiations. Kenny, you're the Liverpool, you're the heart of Liverpool. Um, you know, I need the heart of Liverpool's endorsement <laughs> you know, to this. Um, so you, you two find your manager. And just to backtrack very slightly, right, in terms of Rafa's departure, you said he was clear he wanted out. And there was, so it, it, in terms of, was it ever said between you or between him, or was it just he sent his lawyers in to, he basically, to basically deliver a message that he, he was happy he to leave? He basically pulled out of the whole thing and said, I'm going to leave this to my lawyer to negotiate. 
And so that was that was and basically the lawyer's negotiation was how much does it cost? Yeah, he didn't say he was leaving. He just and said, you, "I'm going to leave." You, didn't, you never told him he was leaving. No, I never told no. him he was leaving, and he never said he was leaving. It just—it was almost like an it understanding. Was just, it was—it was like an understanding, and I'll leave this to my lawyer. And when his lawyer came in, it was what are the terms for going? Was there any relief on your part that, as the man who'd been brought in to sell the club, and that? Let's not forget, was the job that you'd been entrusted with, and no doubt you're someone who likes to get your job done. Um, that having Rafa leave the club as someone who was heavily involved in the political battles that were going on within the club might make that process easier. I don't think I particularly saw that as making it easier. I think I found having to deal with the exit of the manager an inconvenience and getting in the way of what I was trying to do. I would have preferred it stayed. Um, did it have the impact of having one less problem to deal with? Yes. Um, but had he stayed and not been a problem, that would have been better still. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so you say you start this search for a new manager, taking advice, Christian leading the way, but with advice from Kenny Dalglish. I think it's probably the other way around, actually. Kenny yeah, leading, Kenny leading, Christian being involved. And if if what we understand is right in what happened, that Kenny came back with a short list which had Kenny at the top of it, is, is that fair or and indeed true? It's, I don't know where you got that from, it's nearly true. He came back with a shortlist, his name wasn't on it. But he did say, I'm better than any of you. And very few people would disagree with him, probably. Yeah. And, and so how do you deal with, you describe the man as the soul of Liverpool, I telling you that he, you know, he's better than any of the people he can put forward for the job. From most Liverpool fans' knowledge of Kenny, he's a difficult man to say no to, I would have suspect. I said, Kenny, I asked you to find me a manager, not to be the manager. Um, I actually used an analogy which he didn't fully go along with, so let's say, which was um, I was at British Airways, I was chairman of British Airways. CEO, it's a guy called Willie Walsh, who still is uh, uh, IAG, the parent company. Um, but Bob Ayling had been a previous CEO who had left, not at his own request, but he'd left a few years before. And I said, Look, if Willie fell under a bus and I appointed Bob Ayling, who'd been here before, done it before, and left, under difficult circumstances, the city would think I'd gone crazy. Yeah. I didn't think I really had to say anymore. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was doing it an analogy. And and Kenny in his inimitable style thought for me and said, Football's different. Yeah. <laughs> and that that is a very common um, perception, isn't it, in terms of business and football that yeah. football operates to a different yeah. set of rules. Yeah. I mean you must have found that even though you're in football yeah, for a yeah, short time, just yeah. find out immediately. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's true. Um, I still didn't think 
I felt whoever came in as the new owner would want to make their own decisions on the manager. So whoever was going to be the manager had to understand that they might be out actually within a fairly short period of time. Um, as happened. As happened. Um, the one thing I didn't want was for the new owners to be firing Kenny, the heart of Liverpool, yeah. as their first act. Right? Yeah. Um, so it seemed to me that if they wanted to appoint him, which they subsequently did, that was their choice. Um, but as it, as it was quite likely that they would want to put in their own person, whoever was there was going to be fired. And I don't think it was a good start with the fans if that person yes. was going to be Kenny. <laughs> so that was another reason I thought yeah, Kenny was not the right person. So Roy, Roy Hodgson is, is appointed. Can, can we assume he was on? It's always dangerous to assume. Can we assume he was on Kenny's shortlist? Oh, yeah, 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 Pretty high off. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Did Roy Hodgson take the job in the knowledge that he could well be sacked by new owners, e even regardless of issues on the pitch, but that they might want yeah. to bring in their own man? Roy's been around. Roy's been there, seen it, done it. Um, Roy was fully conscious that that was a possibility. Roy was sufficiently self-confident in his own ability to think it wouldn't happen. Uh, but he was fully cognizant of the fact that it might. Is it fair to say that the situation of the club and the, the, the cloud that was hanging over it with the potential of the sale, as well as the, the politics that had gone on under the previous, would that have put off other candidates perhaps that were maybe on the shortlist or, or moved you away from approaching certain candidates? Mm, who knows? In football, you know, I think most managers are self-confident yeah. people who believe they can overcome all. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think the others would have thought of that. Was Roy the first person approached for the job? He was one of two, but I'm not going to say who. Ah, liberty to say. <laughs> I'm sure, we can, uh, I'm sure there'll be people having their own, uh, their own opinions. Best to leave a pub to beer for yes. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, And so, so that's done. So Martin, you've got the managers in place and you can get back to, to your job. Well, my job, exactly. Yeah. How does... Because most people listening to this and reading this won't know how you go about selling a football club. Um, how do you go about selling a football club? Presumably, a document's prepared and sent out to interested parties. Or how, what's the practicalities of it? It's, it's a very interesting question because it is different to selling something else. Um, we we did it technically in exactly the same way that you would sell any other corporation. We drew up an information memorandum, which gave all of the history the financials, um, the playing history, um, the, everything about the club and we approached over a hundred different individuals, organisations etc with this information memorandum. We get BZW were our financial advisors, um, or Barclays, Barclays uh, as it then was, so, so Barclays became our financial advisors um, and they put it together uh, under my leadership so to speak but they put it together they did the contacting under the control of the board of the various uh, parties that we were 
poaching. And what you do in that sort of thing is you, you set out a, a timetable you know, that offers of first offers of in, in, indicative offers, yeah. um, non-binding by such and such a date, and then there will be a second stage on which we'll take you know, X number three or four through to the second stage. And there's, so it was all set out. Like there's that. a time scale. There's a time scale. But as I said, the Barclays. It, we will follow this process, but we have to understand that the most likely buyers will not want to follow the process. Yeah, they want exclusivity. They, well, they want two things. They want exclusivity, um, but they won't want to be seen to have failed. Yeah, there'll be people with lots of money, used to success, used to being the winner, um, not expecting to go through this kind of process. They want a private by the side, so they can so walk away. Yeah, or if they away, lose, they can walk away without the public knowing they've walked yeah. away. Um, if you're dealing with shakes or yeah. large Chinese or, or whatever, they're, they're not people are just going to be fine. They're going to say, "I'm interested, but you know, I don't want to go through that process. Let, let's have a private conversation." So we're going to use this to kind of manage the private conversation. So in those private conversations, which we hope will take place, we can say, okay, it's a private conversation, but you do realize that there is this process, and there is a deadline there, after which we will need to be making, you know, perhaps statements as to how many people involved. So you need to be cognizant of that timetable, because we can only carry a side discussion on for so long with ignoring the timetable. And so it kind of used the timetable to try and get other people. And that timetable, so Martin, that was, that was essentially a timetable brought about by RBS giving Hicks and Gillette six more, a six-month extension, if you like, on the substantial um, loan. It's about 300, 298 million, or yeah, had it been I mean, gone you, up to 350 you, by then? You, One part, you could say yes, that timetable was down to the six months that the bank gave. My own view, and Barclays' view, was without the bank's involvement, that's the sort of timetable we would have had. And the bank also understood that, and therefore, that's one why wasn't they chose driving the other. Yeah. It was the right sort of time. You should be able to do something like that within six months. And if you can't find a buyer within six months, are you going to find a buyer in the next six months, so to speak? No, so. In terms of yourself, you were you were quite quiet in that period publicly. In terms of that, as as you promised to be yeah. when you were when you were appointed, there were a couple of obviously um, parties where interest was leaked. Did that, did that hinder the process? You had obviously yeah, a big, big I, story in the Times from, I, from China. You had yeah, other stories. As I well. decided that you don't carry out a sale like this in public. Ideally, if you're selling a business, the public don't even know you're selling the business. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the worst thing to do, and I could see the fans' frustration, and I could understand the fans' frustration. Everybody wants to know what's happening. But you're less likely to get a deal if it's all being carried out in the press than if you are if you're doing I think you used to say running commentary. You said running you commentary. Yeah. I wasn't prepared to give a running commentary. So when rumours came out, um, I think there was a seven-page piece in the Times about the Chinese, for example. <coughs> we didn't comment officially uh, on it at all. 
There was never, in fact, an indicative offer from the Chinese. There was somebody in China who I think would have liked to and was very happy to promote himself in a way that he got himself a lot of publicity. Mr. Huang. Um, so yeah, they are not given any names. <laughs> um, so yeah, there were there were more than one who was willing to use it to get a lot of local publicity for themselves, recognise it may or may not go through. Um, but yeah, when I when I look at a seven-page story in the Times, I think to myself, where on earth did that come from? Because I'm not seeing anything in front of me yeah. <laughs> whatsoever that supports this story in the Times. But I didn't say anything to the Times. I didn't read yeah, comments, comment on that story. Um, because if you do comment on it, then you've got to comment on the next one and the next one. Because if you, if you say there's no truth to this, the next time they run a story, if you don't say there's no truth to it, you're by definition saying there is truth to it. So you say no comment. In terms of, um, you've been involved in big businesses outside of football, obviously you, 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 we all know about, about those. Liverpool is, in terms of football, one of the biggest brands around. Did you find it harder than you maybe imagined that it was to sell Liverpool at that time? And yes, I perhaps you was frustrated that by the time of our, our first deadline, we didn't have any indicative of us. <laughs> uh, that was worrying. Um, I thought uh, there would be. Uh, I didn't think the numbers would necessarily be where Tom and George thought the numbers would be, but I thought there would be offers. And, and to be fair, there were a number of people who we were still in discussions with who were you know, showing interest, but there weren't any actual indicative offers at all. And was your job to meet with lots of those people, Martin, and sort of indicate what was there for them if they came up with an offer that was acceptable to everybody in terms of investing in the saw it, it was Barclay's job to meet with them in the first place, to see whether there was any credence to the bid. Um, and I would get involved you know, once we'd established that this was a, a genuine potential bidder. And at that stage, there weren't any. And which was disconcerting. Yeah. And where do you go from that? Do you cross your fingers and hope that something emerges, or, or can you be proactive and do something to try and um, flush out a bit? You just keep keep the process going, keep pushing. Um, you you've approached a hundred people at this stage, and nothing's taken course. So you approach some more, and you push a bit more, and a couple actually did then come out. How did the, the situation of the club and the way the club was was at the time in terms of the results weren't great on the pitch, there was some discord amongst well a lot of discord amongst the supporters. Did that have any impact on the sale process or was that just sort of going on in the background while while you were doing your job? It didn't help. Um, yeah, I think This is pure conjecture. I think the performance of the team was affected by what was going on. Now, footballers will tell you 
they're only interested about what goes on in the pitch, you know, what goes on up there, it's, it's over our heads, it's not going to affect us. I don't totally believe that. Um, I think when you've got an unhappy scene, um, a fractious scene, which was less unhappy with yeah. Roy there because there was one less degree of yeah. <laughs> fractiousness going on, um, then uh, I think it does affect the team. Um, was, was he seen by you as a very safe pair of hands? Right, in terms yes. of yeah, you know, yes, he was. Um, I knew he was entirely reliable, um, a safe pair of hands. Um, I think you, he he continued to play Fernando Torres. Um, in my view, long after Fernando had stopped playing for Liverpool. Um, in the sense that Fernando seemed to be spaced out. He was, he just wasn't, and we all know what Fernando Torres could be. <laughs> yeah. We'd all seen Fernando, which I think why, which is why I think Roy continued to play him as a talisman, really. I mean, he was clearly a fan's favourite. Well, Liverpool's number nine. Liverpool's number nine. And Roy continued to play him, even though it was very clear that his head was completely off the page, wasn't there. Um, and I think that affected I think the rest of the team actually, you could see that Fernando's head was off the team, uh, off wasn't there, and I think that kind of thing. But you know, that's, I, my, my conjecture, and it's pure conjecture, is that going on in the background, all of the mucking about, did affect the team. That summer, uh, 2010, there was a lot of speculation about players leaving, Steven Gerrard being one, Fernando being another. Did you have to fight to avoid? A people taking them players, or I'll be convinced those players that they they had to stay at Liverpool. Did that was also part of the Rafa discussion. That the more I heard um, was from those players was that if Rafa stays, I go. From significant players from significant in the Liverpool players. dressing room. Yeah, from significant players in Liverpool dressing room. And would that be in, in personal meetings with them yourself? Um, a lot of that was second-hand through Christian. Because they had a much closer relationship with Christian on a day-to-day basis than me. And in terms of Mr Hicks and Mr Gillette, the general feeling that they weren't to be seen around the club at this stage. Yeah. You had had your initial meeting with them there, they asked you to come in? or. Had you seen either of them since? Oh yeah, no, I saw I saw quite a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah quite a lot of them. They, they um, came to board meetings. Either I saw them or was on the phone with them uh, regularly. Um, they came to some board meetings and some you know, phone meetings or whatever. No, they were taking a very active interest in the whole process. A very active interest in the whole process. Obviously, a substantial amount of money involved for both yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, and. Presumably they wanted to be aware that you were doing your best to get the best yeah. possible buyer for Yeah, they wanted to know, know who were the potential buyers, what, what their offers might be. Um, you know, Tom, I think, was actively working to discourage some of the potential buyers because uh, he didn't want to sell in the first place. 
And he still um, felt he could hang on. He still to felt the club. he could hang on. Yeah, yeah Tom definitely felt he could. Whereas George was desperate to sell it, so he was very keen to know who was on the list. Yeah, he was looking for his money. That that reluctance of Tom Hicks to sell. Did that make you wary of mentioning to him interest from certain parties for fear that he might try to discourage them? Or did you want to try and get a process a little way along the road before letting him know it was in, in, it was in, in, the, in situ? It's a very good question because it took me probably longer than it should have done to realise that I had to be less open with Tom than I would have liked to have been and I should be as chairman and I had been um, because I did feel that he was actively working against a sale. So the two final bidders that did come in both made it a condition of an offer that the owners were not informed. Which was an interesting thing that both of them separately came to the conclusion that they would only put in a bid to me if I didn't tell the owners about it. For a certain stage until, because, of, because well, obviously the owners would have to do yeah, final, final stage. Yes, but, but in the initial stages. In the initial stages, because they felt, they, were, they both felt that things could then happen that would make it difficult for them to proceed if they didn't get to where they wanted to get to. And at this, at this point as well, to point out, there was almost a ticking clock in terms of a deadline set by the bank for, yep. for sort of mid-October. Yep. Yep. So, we, we so bankruptcy was another option which we were looking at. Yeah. Administration. That was seriously considered. That was a seriously considered. Because yeah. that was the fallback alternative. Really. Yeah. And do you think that situation of putting the club into administration could only have happened if, if RBS presumably oh, called, yeah. called yeah, in yeah, their, yeah. their loan. Yeah. Do you were there to find a buyer to pay back mm. that RBS loan. Do you think RBS would have gone ahead with potentially putting Liverpool into administration given, and we'll get on to talk about this and soon I hope, the reaction of the, the mobilisation of the Liverpool support against a possible refinancing by Tom Hicks. Yes. I that they'd proved themselves they had an ability to take action against corporations. I think yeah, yes, the fans um, actions um, I think ultimately were really quite helpful. Um, they the bank when I when I took the role back in April, I think there was no way the bank would have taken the PR hit of putting into administration. By the time it got to October, I think the bank's view was that the PR hit of not putting it into administration was probably bigger than the PR hit of putting it into administration because the fans were so incensed. Um, and that there was at least a significant amount, there would have been at least a significant amount of fan support for putting it into administration, which you wouldn't normally <laughs> expect, and we see that wouldn't have been the case before.
but it, but it had the yeah. it had the I think the effect um, of getting rid of Hicks. Yes, I mean life. I remember Hicks saying he he used the term internet terrorism, um, and he was seen going into um, some bankers in New York by a Liverpool fan who happened to be a Deutsche Bank, I think Deutsche Bank. And by the time he came out of the meeting, there was a campaign going with each of the Deutsche Bank directors being um, campaigned against. You must not give. In fact, it was something in nothing to do with Liverpool. He got into Deutsche Bank, and it was some other yeah. part, part of his business. It was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Liverpool support as well. Yeah. Right. So, and I think that sort of thing, yes, certainly affected. Scene. I think that that I think you I think RBS probably recognised that they might be the target. Yeah. <laughs> and there was there was if a something wasn't done. There was a suggestion in September from of a possible refinancing through Blankstone, um, a US private equity firm. They understand it that Hicks could have potentially refinanced yep. through them. Was this the nightmare scenario for you, Simon, or in the sense that Hicks gets the money, essentially pays back RBS. To a certain extent, you, your employers have got their money back, um, but from a football club's point of view, from a supporter's point of view, Tom Hicks and George Gillette stayed in place at Liverpool, two owners whose modus operandi in buying the club and in, in, in the way they operated and put debt onto the club had made them anathema to the support. But if Hicks had refinanced and paid back RBS, w would you have walked away and felt you'd done the job, the only job you could have done? Or would you have regretted the fact that he remained in place, or they remained in place? I would have regretted. Um, I made it clear to Tom that I wouldn't support that. Um, going back to the dinner that we'd had, and we want to go out of this with our heads held high. Uh, we want to do what's right for Liverpool. We want to show the fans that we are you know, good guys. Um, I would have failed to meet that objective. Um, so I wasn't happy with that. I recognised there was a scenario in which case um, I might not be able to do anything about it. Um, but I would have deemed that to be a failure. Uh, I would have left having been disappointed in myself. Um, because I think we should have been able to do better. I think we did do better. <laughs> and in doing better, you had, as we understand it, two substantial bidders in place at that stage to potentially put to the board. Um, Peter Lim in his one, and obviously NESV, FSG as they are now, the other. Can you take us through the, the pros and cons of both bids and where sort of both bids came from, if you like, how, how those relationships sort of developed between the two bidders? Um, 
I'm restricted on some what I can say on this. Um, I've never disclosed the identity of the second bidder. Um, and I committed not to disclose the identity of the second bidder. Whether it's general knowledge or not, it's not for me to say. Um, both bidders were entirely credible. Um, both bidders um, came onto the scene quite late. Um, both arrived at very, very similar values, which actually comforted me that that was the market value. If I had two, had, we had competitive tension, both wanting it, but both coming out about the same value, made me feel, well, that is the market value, that's the definition of market value. So it's not like somebody's necessarily going to steal here, which is what Tom uh, alleged, because, uh, and George, uh, yeah, because you got two people, and if that was steal, one of them <laughs> would have been more. <laughs> because uh, they were both keen on getting it. Um, I think I would have been happy with either bidder. I think when it came down to the fact that it was six of one half and of the other in terms of quantum, there were two elements that swung it in favour of uh, what is now Fenway. Uh, for me, one, and I think the most important one of the two was that they had demonstrated um, with the Red Sox exactly what they were planning to do with Liverpool. So they had taken a team that had a lot more tradition than recent history, recent success, um, which had a planning agreement for a new stadium and actually bought the land in their case for the new stadium had gone into it and said why do we want to lose all of this traditional history we can renovate the existing stadium to which everyone said no you can't we've looked at that but it can't be done but did it um, did it successfully and then won the World Series twice so they they got a track record of taking a great, traditionally successful top club, which had not enjoyed success recently, enjoyed its success, and converted it to a much more modern stadium, but still Fenway. Um, and so they also wanted to do the same with Anfield. So why would you leave a place like Anfield with all that that's got to go to somewhere New, smart, new, but does it really fit Liverpool? Um, and I like that. So uh, that to me is you know, there's one, well, one bidder who had no history of delivering that, perfectly credible bidder, and somebody I've been happy to sell to in other circumstances. But to me, Fenway had had, they had shown that they could deliver what they were promising. Um, whereas the other person was just a promise, in a sense. Had Fenway's bid been significantly lower than, than the other bids, but they had that to this would, would that still have been an option? Because you, you, I think you said at the time that it wasn't just about selling to the highest bid, that it was about it, the right fit. It, it, like. Going back to our conversation in April, the right fit was important. Um, 
and to me they were a better fit but if the other bidder had been bidding a material amount more then they were a perfectly credible bidder there was nothing wrong with them as a bidder um, I think the fact that they were both effectively offering about the same amount meant the other factors could, could be much stronger but the other piece that came into it was by now it was quite clear I was going to be sued <laughs> um, and I felt the Americans were much more aware of that piece of the process and much more likely to stand up so that piece of the process. Let's talk about how you get from relatively um, sort of friendly discussions with Tom Hicks and George Gillette to a situation where you're being threatened uh, with being sued for, for a, lot, a lot of money. And so you've got two bids on the table. For a certain period of time, you keep them private from the owners to let those bids flesh out, I guess, in, in privacy. At this stage, are you talking to Ian Eyre and Christian Perslow yes. about the, those bids? They're yes. fully aware of them. Yes. And at what stage do you... Not initially. No. In, both, in one case, initially, um, but one of them came through Ian. Um, so one of them, all three of us, were involved in from the start. Um, the other one, to begin with, it was just me, and I brought them into it as it, as it progressed a bit. And so do you three yourselves have a chat and... I say a chat, obviously, um, detailed discussions and look, look at pros and cons of everything. Yes. Do you three come to a decision of which bidder you prefer and decide that to take that to the owners, or are you three happy with both bids and then go to the owners and, and say to them, we've got two bidders? We've both, situation. We, were both, we were all three happy with both bidders. We were all three happy that both bidders were credible, deliverable, um, we had differences of view between us as to which was the preferred bidder, um, but we were all happy with both of them. So we were happy to take them both to the board. Um, I think we'd been helped by the fact that we'd had to keep the owners conscious of the fact there were bidders, there were potential bidders. Um, and I'd also informed them that one of the bidders uh, owned a US baseball team. Um, I think, no, no, one, one of the bidders was a big US sports franchise owner. And they knew that they'd heard rumours um, that the New England Patriots and Bob Kraft had been approached and had turned it down. And they were convinced it was Kraft, but he wasn't going to actually bid, so they didn't take it seriously, because they, they were convinced they knew who it was, and it wasn't yeah, serious. Was complacent so actually it was, it was a helpful yeah. diversion yeah. in many ways. Because I was telling them the truth, but it, they'd interpreted it differently. Um, so, yes, I did 
trying to kind of push them into a decision, to be fair. So we sent out board papers, I think, on Saturday for the Monday meeting. Or might have got the date, might have been Tuesday, I can't remember, but it was it was pretty short notice. This is the, the first week of October we're talking about? Yeah, this was um, the 6th of October, I think. You've probably got the dates a bit clearer than I have, but it was it was it was kind of over the weekend um, that the, the bids came together. I think yeah, the board meeting was the Tuesday because the, the, the bids came together the weekend, and then on the Monday we had them both in to Liverpool and were negotiating the final, you know, trying to extract the final uh, pieces from each of them. So we had them in separate rooms. And those negotiations were being done by yourself, Christian, and Ian. Christian, Ian, Barclays, uh, Slaughters, yeah, the whole team were there. And do you guys then decide this is the bid we want, this is the one we want to put to the board vote? We actually put both bids to the board, because well, as you know, in the end, they tried to replace two of the board, take Christian and Ian off the board and put the other two on, which I refused. Um, so they didn't take part in the conversation. Um, George's lawyer stayed online. So when we, we, they weren't in the UK, so they were both in the US, both declined to stay on the conversation because they, they both deemed the board meeting not to be valid. So just to recap to Martin, this is you have two bids in place of which both bids you're happy with yep. to put to the board. There's a five-man board, yep. yourself, Christian Perslow, Ian Eyre, George Gillette, Tom Hicks. You convene a board meeting in Slaughter and May offices, were they the lawyers at the time? Yes. And with presumably you three present and the two owners present digitally via yes. Skype or, yes. or something, a conference call or whatever. And had you been aware of the move um, to try and replace Christian and Ian from the board before the board meeting? Um, no, the, or was the, it dropped on you? It was dropped on me about three minutes before the board meeting was due to start. Oh, so you had plenty of notice. Yes. <laughs> And so, we, so we started the board meeting. They said that they were on that call. They said that um, the board was invalid because two of the board had been removed by them, uh, and two others were now on. Um, One of which was, was Tom's son. Tom's son and Mac, and, and yeah, I think it was the financial PA, controller as well. Consult, yeah, Thomas, yeah. Lorry, Lorry, yeah. yeah so uh, they asked for an adjournment for week, knowing that both of the bids ran out you know, like at midnight on Tuesday. <laughs> um, so I gave them a one-hour adjournment um, and said I would take legal advice during that hour and we would reconvene in an hour, which they objected to, but we did. I took legal advice in that time from slaughters um, just to make sure I and this is where we come back to the point we mentioned right at the start. Yeah. One of the crucial bit that only you only had, to make had the, the right to make the changes to the board. So when we reopened the board, 
I say, uh, under the Articles of Association, because we'd written this into the Articles of Association. Uh, in the of Association, I was the only person who could make the change to the board, um, even though they had a holding company owned 100% of the shares, which had mandated this change. Uh, so I was not accepting the change. We were going to proceed with the board meeting. Um, they said that was uh, unconstitutional or ultra-virus, uh, to be accurate, um, and that they would take no part because it was ultra-virus. They weren't prepared to take part in an ultra-virus board meeting. Effectively outside the control of outside that board. Outside control of that board. Um, so they both rang off. They both had their lawyers on the line at the time because that was normal um, as observers, so to speak, or as listeners. And Tom's lawyer also rang off, but um, George's lawyer stayed on. So we continued with the board meeting <coughs> and concluded that um, both bids were acceptable and that we would call this a, uh, a convenience in a sense, that we would set up a subcommittee of the board, being myself, Christian and Ian, <laughs> um, to go away and assess the two options, uh, to take further negotiations if necessary, to come to a final conclusion. For the significant step that day was you went public with that on the significant step later that day was I think you went public on Liverpool's website with that that news that, that was posted on, on yeah, Liverpool, that's which right. is a, that's right. an incredible yes. uh, unusual step if you like for yeah. you know a, 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 such such details to be made public yes. was that was that obviously important in terms of keeping the fans aware of of, of deciding that stage, what was going on you know, at that stage you think on television <laughs> yeah. um, it was important to keep the fans yeah. Yeah. As aware as possible at that stage, because yeah, they were getting you know, yeah. big headlines um, coming to them, and as it was now a critical stage, it was important to try and state the facts as we could. Um, and we stayed up I know, until the early hours of the morning, negotiating between the two, uh, and confirming in the end it was going to be Fenway, Nesby. And was that? Was that a unanimous decision of your of the subcommittee, therefore the board, in the end, or was it so close between the two bids that that, that there was, you know, a two a two one majority? It was a close decision for all of us. Uh, it wasn't unanimous. Um, it was restrained somewhat by planning, though. So you you're going with NESV. How do you convey to them? They've won. They're the new owners of Liverpool Football. Do you, do you ring John Henry up? No, they were still in the office. They were still there? Uh, so midnight or whatever it was. So they, still there. they have a room and they the other bidder has so another room. And so I went in and congratulated them. At that stage, they looked at each other and said, I wonder whether we've won or lost with this. <laughs> <laughs> and this is early hours in the morning. Yeah. Then, so this is, yeah. and, and obviously, you then, either before or after that, presumably after, you, you go and tell the other bidder, yeah. they've been unsuccessful. Is that a difficult thing to do? It, it was a difficult thing to do. It, it was unfortunate um, um, that the main person um, 
what's going on. In fact, the main person had left the country uh, by then, and the team had left the building. So I could only tell them by phone and uh, indirectly, which was unfortunate because I would have much preferred to do it face to face. And how do you inform Tom Hicks and George Gillette that? Presumably, do you have to then convene the board to formally vote on it? That we did they, convene, yeah, we did we convene the board to which, vote on which, it. Um, and I can't actually remember how I told those two. Do you know, it's funny, isn't it? I should be able to remember. I don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the way to do it is. I didn't phone them. I'm sure I didn't phone them. Um, Do you know, I honestly can't remember whether I let them know by email or whether I left it to the lawyers to tell their lawyers. But when it would have been, it may well have been that. It already reached the stage where one was kind of <laughs> But when it came to the vote of the boards, Martin, did, did, did they just not, they took no part in that no vote part. whatsoever? Took no part. Because they claimed it was up to violence. And of course, you also announced once you voted to approve that bid, Liverpool had effectively been sold. But you also said, and I'm going to go to the High Court to prove that I, that I had the right to take the action that I did. Was that legal advice? Presumably it was. And take us through the. the your day in court, if you like, that must have been a very nerve-wracking, stressful, but ultimately incredibly rewarding day. Yeah, we had... It all got rather confusing, and I'm trying to recall precisely the chronology. Because um, we went to the court... All right. If you send me something... I'm just trying to think, because... Because there were two stages. We went to the court, got approval, and then Tom went to a court in Texas. This is the Dallas court, famously, yes. And got an injunction on the basis that. Um, Basis, it was too late to go. The, the court decision had been made without them having a chance to put in their side of the story. It wasn't true. Um, and, it, and the courts had now closed in England, and therefore um, they couldn't appeal in England. So they got the injunction. Um, so then we had to go back in And I think when the American judge discovered that he had been misled, that they had actually been in court in the UK, and they had um, made their case, um, contrary to what he'd been told, um, and certainly the UK court didn't accept their injunction, and he then withdrew the injunction. Um, and I cut the, the pieces of it got quite confused yeah. but um, ultimately yeah, we were successful. Were you, I mean, I can remember that time first, I know Andy certainly can. You, you probably you, got the facts clearer in your you, mind than I. Were you, no? were you <laughs> fearful 
that it wouldn't go wouldn't go your way in court? No, I, did, did, I you knew was, you were in the right, obviously, but you you fearful. Um, both then and subsequently when they sued us, uh, I was my only concern. Um, was keeping it in the UK um, because I knew in a UK court we were within operating within the law, we were acting properly, um, and I was confident that the court would find it in our favour. Uh, I've been in courts in the US, um, state courts and federal courts. Uh, federal courts are very reliable. Yeah, um, and you can get the facts established and this will be made on the facts. In state courts, politics comes into it a lot more and who you know and what you know comes into it a lot more. So I didn't want to be in a US state court because that was a risk. It's a serious risk. Um, but as long as we could keep the decision in the UK, then I was comfortable with it. The, the court obviously said that Hicks and Gillette had had their opportunity to have their say and whatnot. You mentioned that you yeah, kept the specific details of bidders from them for a while in terms of progressing the bids to a certain stage before taking it to them. Um, how long before, roughly, I'm sure you don't remember in detail, but how long before the board voted on Union Sports Ventures, the new owners of Liverpool, would that name have been under the noses of Tom Hicks and George Gillette? I, my recollection is we voted on the Tuesday and it was only on the previous Saturday that they had the names. So they on the only, only so knew the names for about three days. And that was specifically your decision in terms of progressing those yes. bits to a stage yes. you were happy with? Yes. Um, which most they, people... They didn't knew there were bids. But they didn't they know. Did, the, they didn't know who the bids were, and they did know that there were were bids, and that the bidders required me not to inform them. So they, they knew it was a yeah um, a condition yeah, a condition of bid. Now, Mr. Justice Floyd became somewhat of a judicial hero <laughs> for Liverpool fans on the day, and um, on two days in court, obviously yes. the first day, and then going back when yep. the restraining order was lifted. He's talked about Hicks and Gillette um, flagrantly abusing the undertaking they'd given to yourself at the very start of the process to not to block any reasonable sale. Um, Hicks then came out afterwards and in very colourful language, which I'm almost nervous to repeat because I know you threatened to sue him about it, but accused you of being the orchestrator of this epic swindle on himself and George Gillette in terms of negotiating the sale. Um, he'd said in the Dallas courtroom, or his representatives had, that you should be jailed. Uh, he'd also obviously threatened to sue you personally for an awful lot of money. Um, now, whatever your feelings that you're on the right of the argument, that must be um, a situation just for your family in a way that, that that must be worrying and um, how did you react and 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 how did you ever settle the epic swindle um, claim? You know, um, 
I'm not a person who gets ruffled very easily. Um, I've been in court before, uh, corporately rather than personally. Um, I've had, in a couple of cases, horrendously large um, claims made. Um, once on the tobacco side where we had a very large award made against us in a state court, which was overturned in federal court, we didn't pay anything. Um, but it was very substantial. Um, and when I was chairing horse racing, British horse racing, uh, we had claims of 32 million pounds when we only had a million pounds in the bank. So um, there were, and that was all based on an ECJ uh, judgment. Um, so I'd been in situations before where um, it looked quite tricky. Um, but I think what I'd learned in both of those was just keep calm, keep cool, um, stick to the process, be clear that you've followed due process, you, you followed the law, you've taken proper legal advice, you've done it properly. In this case, you know, we'd had slaughters in May every step of the way, uh, we'd had bark plays every step of the way. Um, you know, we had, it wasn't like it was one person running it on a private show. Uh, we'd had a proper process in place. We had followed a proper process all the way. We had kept the board fully informed. I say fully informed, but fully informed within the context that I've talked about there. Um, and we'd had two bidders, um, both keen to win it, which suggested that the price was market value. So the facts stacked up as a open and shut case in that sense. Um, hence, needing to keep it in the UK, and that was my only concern. I'm not sure I even told my family about the size of the <laughs> claim. <laughs> Can you remember how much it was for? It was a billion dollars, which I don't know where anybody <laughs> thought I was going to get a billion dollars from. <laughs> so it didn't really matter whether it was 50 million dollars or a billion dollars or what, you know, they weren't going to get it, were they? <laughs> um, the, the, um, I felt comfortable um, that um, between the bank, myself, the new owners um, and the insurance uh, which was about five million the insurance <laughs> um, we were covered, so I never really, I never really lost any sleep over it. To tell you the truth, it's it dragged on for a long time, but I never lost any sleep over it. It was a bit of a hassle. In terms of then, obviously, the decision has been made. The new chairman, Tom Wearer, obviously, had come in as part of the the New England Sports Foundation. Was that just then your your dealings with the club? Overnight, almost cut. You, you sort of you say, shake hands, thank you very much, and then you you go your yes. way, and the club goes. Yeah, I mean, was there a sort of a handover yes, process? Basically, um, you, John and Tom asked me if I would stay on as chairman. It is, um, which I declined. Um, it seemed to me that, in simple terms, um, two things. As a Chelsea fan, I was totally at ease 
in going into a situation here where um, I'd always liked Liverpool as a team. Um, I always saw Liverpool as one of the three, two, three global British teams. They're an icon. Um, they're part of what Premier League's about, part of what British football is, Premier League football is to the world. And if you can go in and do something constructive uh, for a club like that, it was worth doing. Um, being the full-time chairman changes the process. Um, and actually, you're no longer the independent chairman. In many ways, you're the UK spokesperson for the owners, which is a very different role. Um, it was tempting, yeah, because football on the inside is an attractive sport, uh, sport person. I, I liked it, I enjoyed it. So I was tempted in the sense that it would have been um, fun to work with the Liverpool squad for longer, um, but it didn't seem right. How long did you sort of take to consider that then? Did you, uh, no, I mean, did I did a matter of days. Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I did go home and discuss it with my wife, um, and she helped me think that through. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think I discussed it with my son as well, and he helped me think that through. And I think we concluded you know, the right thing to do was to say no. Um, so I wished them uh, every success, but I thought it was better that it wasn't me that did it. You might not want to answer this, but have you ever regretted it since? Just, just looking from afar, what deduction? Have you ever, has there ever been a time when you looked and thought, I wouldn't have minded, I wouldn't have minded staying in football even or staying at Liverpool? It would have been. I think I would have enjoyed it, but I think you put yourself in a quite difficult position. Um, if you're the chairman of a club that's owned by Fenway, um, and Fenway want to do something that you don't agree with, you have two options. Probably you're supporting something you don't agree with, or resigning. And neither of those are very attractive options. Yes. Um, so don't put yourself in that position. And fans will be very interested. Fenway have <laughs> FSG now have generally had a relatively um, positive reaction from supporters in their time at the club. Um, maybe recently there's been some criticism um, of perhaps a lack of investment uh, in the playing squad um, and part of that stemmed from some quotes uh, which emerged from litigation which continues in America to this day I think um, linked to the seal of the club um, of, of emails between Fenway executives about essentially what a good deal it was to, to buy Liverpool. As you look on now from outside, how do you reflect on the people you sold the football club to? Do you have any dealings with them? Um, for instance, you know, have you been to see the, the new piece of the stadium they built? And is your involvement in terms of that litigation in America that continues now very much as an interested observer rather than any sort of participant. 
Yes, it's only as interest observer, not as a participant. Um, you, whenever you do a transaction, um, you think you found the right people, but you didn't know you found the right people until you know, five years later you find out whether you did find the right people. I'm very happy that we found the right people. I think they're terrific owners. I really do. I think you know, they have um, delivered on Enfield, which I think is fantastic. Um, they've got the club back from the bottom of the table team, actually, that it was. That's in the relegation zone. In the relegation zone to a top of the table team. But you know, they're in that. When you start the season, you know, there are six clubs that could plausibly win the league. There are four that are going to get into the Champions League. You know Liverpool's in there amongst them. Are they the favourites? No, but they're right up there as a possible. Um, they brought in a fabulous manager. And, you know, I think he's a terrific guy. I think the emotion that he has around it is great. Um, you know, I think they've done everything that you can ask of them, really. I mean, people have to understand that there's not a bottomless pit. They are business people. There's not a bottomless pit. They're not just going to continue to just put more and more money into a playing team without seeing the benefits uh, of it coming through. I think they have invested in the team. I think they will continue to invest in the team. They've certainly invested in the club, the stadium. They've certainly invested in having the right manager. Um, you, I think they face a difficult task, which continues to be a difficult task, which is to manage something from afar, in that sense. You have Tom as the chairman living in Los Angeles. Um, they kind of make that, made that work, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, but I sit here now, what, what, six, seven years on now, six years on, um, and my conclusion is we found the right people. From your point of view... <laughs> uh, sorry, I didn't answer the rest of your question, which, do I have any ongoing relationship with them? Not really. I mean, I probably contact them, send them a congratulatory message or something if they win something big or... Whatever, I probably go up to watch a game once a year. I haven't actually this year, so I haven't seen them. I mean, last time I went, they were yeah, in the building. middle of the building. Yeah. Um, I was intending to go up this year, but haven't made it so far. I might still get, get up there. I'd like to see it. You should. It's really, yeah. It's really yeah. Um, I need to, you know. I, I, it's, it's sort of definitely on the, <laughs> on the to-do list, so to speak. But uh, no, I, I, I have very occasional contact with them, not much. From your point of view, obviously you're right up someone's now, but do you, um, to give you a source of pride that you're part of, never mind club allegiances in the past or the future or present, does it give you a source of pride that you're known as someone who has an impact on Liverpool's history, albeit not on the pitch, not in, you know, not in yeah, sort of you know, the football first, sense? First of all, um, when you do something, you want to do it well. Uh, you want to look back on it and think, well, I'm pleased I did it. And I'm happy with the outcome. Um, I think it's a sporting thing like this, even more so uh, in many ways, because there's a lot more people outside <laughs> who are involved. Um, yeah, so um, I'm very pleased I did it. Um, and I'm pleased with the outcome. I think the thing that completely threw me 
which I was totally unprepared for, is that, to me, football fans all recognise the players, they all recognise the manager, but the chairman's a grey suit. Yeah. And you can walk past the chairman, you know, nobody realises who it is. I was astonished at how often I was stopped in the street or stopped in a pub or stopped in somewhere um, where people come up and say, thank you for saving my club. Because um, I just didn't expect that. I thought the chairman was going to be a grey suit who wasn't recognised. Does that still happen now? Occasionally, yeah, yeah, even now, occasionally. Not as much as it used to, obviously, <laughs> but yeah, even now, occasionally. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, I mean, that's been, makes me realise how it could have been reversed. <laughs> <laughs> At least they're shaking their hands. At least they're shaking my hands. Um, and to be fair, the, the, I, I sit in the Matthew Harding stand at Chelsea, and the guys around us, yeah, have been there for a long time, so you get to know all the guys around you. They all took it very well. Really? <laughs> yeah, they did. They rid me about it, but they took it very well. Well, um, they were indeed dramatic days in the history of Liverpool Football Club. It's been fascinating to listen Absolutely. to the memories of a man who was right at the heart of it. Um, Sir Martin Broughton, congratulations on Chelsea's <laughs> imminent title. <laughs> uh, we're hoping that at some stage very soon we'll be celebrating such a thing at Anfield itself. But for now, Simon Brown, thank you very much. Thank you very much.